0: All right, brothers and sisters, I want to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word. Last week, we preached the latter half of Matthew 14, and we saw that the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels, and that John records that at least some of them wanted to take Jesus and make him king by force. And so this represents the the climax, the pinnacle of Jesus' popularity. And then coming back down from that moment, we're going to see as he enters his third and final year of ministry, two things happen. One, he spends less and less time with the crowds, and he spends more and more time with concentrated teaching with the apostles. He doesn't totally disappear. He doesn't, like, go into a cave and people forget he's alive, but he's rattled the cage enough that the Pharisees want to kill him. And now he's going to, for the last year of his ministry, focus on his disciples. But we're just entering that stage. That's just the context. And as Jesus... Walks on the water and he gets the exclamation that you are the son of the living God and he's worshipped. We then have this transition section of verses 34 through 36. And this is important. I failed to really talk about it last week. That's why I'm including it here. But it introduces the next section and it also highlights a point of irony. And so brothers and sisters, let's give ear to the word of the Lord, the word of the apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit beginning at verse 34 of chapter 14 through verse 20 of chapter 15. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded... Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage and for what it teaches but the nature of our hearts and the propensity of our religious inclinations. Forgive us where we have come up short. Grant that we would have sensitive hearts, hearts of flesh, not hearts of stone. And grant that we would in sincerity and true devotion express our devotion to you in our acts. For Christ's sake we pray this. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, well, you've heard this passage before. I know you've, you've read these words before. Uh, these words here are, are very important for a number of reasons. They are, they are hugely significant verses in Christian theology. It is arguably uh, this confrontation here between Jesus and the religious leaders from Jerusalem is, is arguably the, the most crystal clear and succinct presentation of what the situation was going on. The contrast between the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the religious leaders, the, the traditional Judaism of, of the day, it stands in stark, diametrically opposed contrast. And it's here on display in crystallized fashion and form. In this passage, we see Jesus cite Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Isaiah 29, 13. But we see Jesus entering a fray that was taken up by all the prophets. Virtually every prophet speaks against Externalism speaks against formalism and the religious hypocrisy of it. Indeed, sometimes the prophets in their indignation and anger, they they express the truth to the point that God takes no delight in their sacrifices at all. The forms that God had instituted, he takes no pleasure in. Precisely because the people's hearts are far from him. And this worship that they're rendering to him is mere external obeisance, and there's absolutely no inward devotion, delight, or affection. Our God is after people who love him, and our God is far from those who under a pretense appear to serve him, but whose inclinations lie elsewhere. God is more concerned with the internal than the external. We know that. And this passage, Matthew 15, coupled with John 4 and the famous God is seeking those who worship in spirit and in truth. These two passages form the backbone of Christian understanding of the kind of worship that God finds acceptable. And so here, for example, what our BCO says about worship. In BCO chapter 47, paragraph 5, I love this. And it's really unspectacular. It's, it's, a, it's a standard expression of, of Christian understanding of what true and right worship looks like based upon these passages. Here's what it says. Public worship must be performed in spirit and in truth. Externalism and hypocrisy stand condemned. The forms of public worship have value only when they serve to express the inner reverence of the worshiper and his sincere devotion to the true and living God. And only those whose hearts have been renewed by the Holy Spirit are capable of such reverence and devotion. That's worded well. So riddle me this. If everybody hates hypocrisy, if if even the Jews of the day would agree that you shouldn't be a hypocrite, if if Catholics and Orthodox and Anglicans and Lutherans and Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists and Evangelicals and everybody agree that you should worship in spirit And in truth, why, oh why, does this issue of externalism and hypocrisy continue again and again and again to be the issue of the day? You see, it's precisely the issue that the Pharisees and the Scribes couldn't address. It's the itch they couldn't scratch. And the impulse of all religion, the impulse of the the fallen human heart, is to see the problem as one of outside in. That there's all these corrupting influences And I have to preserve myself from them. But I, even I, am basically okay. And Jesus here in these words gets to the heart of it. And that is, the problem is the heart of it. The reason why our religions and our, and our denominations and our, and our own personal conducts so easily drift into externalism and formalism is because in my heart, I don't want to believe that my heart is the problem. We don't want to believe that your problem is you, that my problem is me, We want to believe that the problem is is the stuff out there. And if I just do the right things and keep myself pure, show that I am doing the right things, living right, then I'm basically okay. And Martin Luther wisely and accurately noted nearly 500 years ago that our good deeds... Can be just as dangerous as our bad. We all know our bad deeds are dangerous. How are your good deeds dangerous? Because they can lull you into thinking that you're okay and that you don't really need the nonstop, constant work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That you maybe just maybe are the exception. When Paul says, there's nothing in me that's good except for the Holy Spirit, we, we want to think we're the exception to that, don't we? And that's what externalism affords. It affords our, our idol-producing hearts, the, the hearts that just almost naturally drift towards it. It affords us an opportunity to look like everything is okay. So in this passage, we see Jesus address the heart of the problem, which is our heart. And I'm telling you in high level of this chapter that this passage is important, and it sheds light on the same issue, but what's going to happen next. Go home and read what happens next. It's one of the most provocative and and unsettling things that Jesus does in his ministry But here, the religious leaders will not take the verdict. Who among us is willing to hear and understand that the problem is us? The problem is our hearts? And if we are to be healed, we must first grasp how desperately we need to be healed. And that my sickness is so pervasive that it's, it's not just a one-time thing. I need to continually, again and again, come to the fount of living water. Because my heart is an idle factory. And it's working overtime. And we need forgiveness. But this passage, from what we looked at today shows Jesus in three capacities. Matthew is keen for us to understand who Jesus is and to confront us with the question, who do we say he is? And that's the question you must address to then say, how will you respond to him? So in this passage, you see you see three broad stroke uh, sections. You see Jesus, the compassionate healer, In chapter 14, 34 to 36, you see Jesus, the condemning judge, in 15, 1 through 9, and Jesus, the correcting teacher, in verses 10 through 20. Quickly, look back with me at uh, chapter 14, 34 to 36, Jesus, the compassionate healer. It says they had crossed over and came to the land of Gennesaret. That's not a city. It's, it's not a town, it's, it's a region, okay? And I always chuckle when I think about the scale differences between our place and their place. So, you know, they called it the Sea of Galilee, and it's like this big thing. And it's, it's like three times the size of Lake Conroe. I mean, it's not particularly big. And, and the plain of Gennesaret was considered by them to be this, this massive, wondrous plain that's, that is to this day remarkably lush. It's like three miles by five miles. Uh, But to them, it's this massive thing. Our scale is so big here in the U.S. Um, But it's very rural. Or it was very rural. There was no cities around it. So the people here, when he goes to them, are a bunch of uneducated country bumpkins. And please... Remove from your mind the comparison of modern America where you have people doing remote working and you have people in the country who have doctorates and master's degrees and they're well-educated, well-read, and that's not, that's not how it was. That's not how it's been for most of human history. Country people largely have been illiterate and ill-informed. And that's just the point. Jesus here comes to a bunch of country bumpkins in a a place that is not very populated at all. They have to go throughout the region to gather people precisely because there's no town right there from which to get that same group of people. And notice, they're country bumpkins. They're not well-read. They're not well-studied. But they recognize who he is. They had the spiritual insight, the spiritual acuity to understand who this person was. Maybe not in truth and entirety. In fact, I don't think so. But, But they're not asking questions. They're not looking a gift horse in the mouth. They know here's one who can heal us. And so they, quick as they can, go round up every sick person they can find. And, and they implore Jesus, it says, that, that they just might touch his robe. I think it's humorous. Two, two things I, I note from that observation. On the one hand, they, they want to be as, as non-inconveniencing as possible. Jesus, you don't got to even say something. You don't have to go anywhere. Just, just sit down, take it easy. We, we, we won't be a bother. We'll just come and just touch your robe and everything will be cool. But on the other hand, you you kind of see that uh, there's almost this, he's a commodity to be used. He exists to heal them, and upon being healed, they're going to go about their way. And they just, there's there's no mention of any response. They heal them, and they go. And sadly, that's... That's a response from a lot of people, is it not? They, they have the spiritual awareness to, to recognize who Jesus is or to at least see him in a hazy shade. But they can perceive enough about him that they know there's something good to be got there. And they want to get the good. But notice Jesus. Though he has, by this point, repeatedly denounced and condemned the crowds for failing to respond in faith and repentance, Notice that he yet again heals them. His compassion is abundant and abounding. He didn't have to let them be healed just by touching him. He's he's not like a live wire that can't control it and it's just there and if they touch... He's in sovereign control over who is healed and under what circumstances. And he heals them. Even though their devotion is non existent, nonetheless, his compassion is real. But then let's compare or contrast the scenes. These country bumpkins who, 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 who are illiterate, who couldn't read their own Torah, nonetheless recognize who he is. They don't ask questions. They're not worried about They just want to get healed. Next verse. The religious leaders come from Jerusalem. So now the, the papal inquisitors have arrived to change centuries and to change religions, but it's still the same metaphor. These are the bigwigs from the religious capital, and they have come to inquisit. And they did not ride horses. They walked, and assuming he's still in the region of Gennesaret, that's about a 60-mile walk. And if you've ever seen that terrain, it is, it is hilly, mountainy, and rugged. It is not flat. So it's taken them a long time and it's been very arduous and they have thought through it and, and we, are, we receive the fruit of their, of their deliberations. They have it crystallized and they ask Jesus what they perceive to be the defining issue and that is why do your disciples not observe the commandments of the elders? Which, of course, is simply another way of saying, why are you teaching people not to follow the commandments or the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Remember, this is not about cleanliness of of, of avoiding germs. This is a ceremonial washing. Uh, the, The water that was used was about enough to fit into an eggshell. So they're not, this isn't a hand scrub. This, this is a ceremonial washing they're talking about here. And here you see Jesus, the condemning judge. Think back to when he's first confronted in the gospel of Matthew by the religious leaders back in Matthew chapter 12. There the issue is the disciples are plucking grain in a field. And so the matter was one of them breaking or doing what was not permitted to be done on the Sabbath. And if you look back at chapter 12, Jesus responds to their questioning accusation by clarifying the nature of what was permissible under what circumstances on the Sabbath. There he responded for two reasons. First, they had not formally calcified their opposition to him. So there was hope for them. But second, the question of what is and isn't acceptable on the Sabbath is, even if it didn't come from a sincere heart, it's a a fair question stemming from what the word of God says about the Sabbath. Sabbath. Here, when they say, why do, for they don't, look at verse 3. He answered them, and why do you? Okay. That word translated and in your Bible is sometimes rightly translated also. Also, why do you? Okay. Understand that what Jesus is doing here is he is dismissively acknowledging the charge. But just as quickly as he's acknowledging that, yeah, we don't wash our hands, he moves on. So so understand the net effect of what Jesus is saying here is, so what? So what? And then he turns it back on them. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Sort of preceding Thomas Jefferson by 1,700 years, Thomas Jefferson famously wrote that the the earth belongs to the living And so Jesus won't allow them to hide behind the traditions of their ancestors, and he makes them own it. It's your tradition. It ain't the rabbis standing here, it's you. And it's you who allow legislation and traditions and practices of of, of Corbin to, to be birthed that provide an out for people to keep them from doing what the word of God says must be done. And Jesus quotes from two passages here. He cites Exodus 20, verse 12, which is the fifth commandment, to show the commandment of God related to what we must do for our parents, honor them. But then he cites Exodus 21, to show the heart of God. This is how seriously God takes honoring parents. That those who dishonor their parents should be put to death. Jesus is wanting to show them the heart of God. This is a big deal to God, honoring your parents. But yet you allow people to tell their parents who, who don't have social security in this stage children were their social security. I hear a lot of people, I'm not saving for retirement. I'm going to just work until I die. And I'm like, there's a lot of things that can happen to you that don't kill you that still render you unable to work. And back in the day, there was no social security. There, 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 were no, there, there was nothing. And so if your children did not take care of you, you, you would have to, I mean, you just die. but not all children have good relationships with their parents, right? That's, that's not a new f- phenomenon. And, and so the practice of Corbin, which I could say now that a, a portion of my income is going to be dedicated to God upon my death. So parents, sorry, it's not yours, and the religious institution is always looking for more money, so do you think they frowned upon such a practice? no. So the commandment of God to honor parents is subverted by the practice that their tradition had established. For the sake of your tradition, you make void the word of God. And that's what happens regularly. And I want to quickly note that Jesus does not hear carte blanche, tell us we can just throw out everything that's been handed down to us. That's that's not what he's saying. In fact, in most places, Jesus participates in the traditions handed down. Did you know that? Perhaps most famously, just about every Christian will, when describing the what happened in the upper room when the the observance of Passover, and, and we will talk about, oh, this was the cup of this and the cup of that. and the, uh, uh, that's a rabbinical tradition that we're just assuming Jesus did, and every Christian does. That's not in the Bible. Jesus just did that, and Jesus clearly has absolutely no qualms about participating in synagogue worship, which is not in the Bible. So he he didn't object to every single thing that might be done that's an expression of a community's understanding of what what God wants, but he accurately and rightly noted that what happens, what happened then and what what happens now is in our sinful hearts, the, the distinction between that which God has commanded and that which we have devised to help us understand and apply God's word oftentimes gets blurred. And so the two become one and the same. We must resist elevating the words of man. And so he condemns them as hypocrites and that their worship is in vain. That is, their worship is worthless because they're teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. But then he corrects, and this is where he gets to the heart of it, that it's not which comes from outside that defiles. It's what comes from the inside out that reveals defilement. And so we, we need to hear that, that we are our own problem. And we love instituting and enacting rules and practices and traditions that allow us to posture, that offer us a crutch. I don't drink, I don't smoke. I don't chew, I don't dance, I don't play cards, and I don't go with girls who do. I must be okay. Perhaps some of you recall perhaps a former chapter of your life in which you perhaps by your ecclesiastical context were taught that drinking is more shocking and scandalous than fornicating. That's what happens. That's what happens. Or perhaps tisk, tisk, shame, shame. You're less spiritual, you're less good because you don't go to church x number of times a week. Tradition. Tisk, tisk, shame, shame, you wore shorts to church. Or you're bebopping down the road to ACDC. I'm sorry, whatever the modern people listen to. (laughs) And you pull into the church parking lot and you quickly flip the channel to 89.7 posturing, all right? And that's what our Lord condemns. He wants hearts that love him and serve him in truth because they rightly see their themselves and their need for him. And that's the great danger of formalism and externalism is it makes people who are dead feel like they're alive, Reject it. Allow your heart to be exposed to the penetrating spirit of God and pursue truth. For in truth you find the great physician. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for all that you teach us and do for us. Forgive us for being so disposed to religious formality and formalism, externalism, for preferring to dress up the outside rather than to clean out the inn. Lord, grant that we would, by your spirit, pursue truth, and be found in the beauty of holiness because of it. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.